Hello and welcome to episode 109 of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Marco. And I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us on the podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing journeys, hearing about how they broke into the industry and try to get as many hints and tips from them as possible. Now, regular listeners, if you were listening to the episode last week, will be expecting this podcast to be an interview with uh, the brilliant Martha Wells. Uh, But because we realised that It is the 40th anniversary of Wrath of Khan um, this month being released in cinemas. Uh, We thought, since we'd just spoken with Nicholas Meyer, we should should release this episode now. Yeah, I should say up front, Wrath of Khan is probably my favourite film of all time. So I was quite nervous chatting to Nick Meyer. I call him Nick for... Yeah, you're that closer yeah, yeah friendly yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's it's a really fun chat he's a, he was a really nice guy and some you know really great stories of having worked on so many big movies with so many big names in the industry um and and for those that don't know how he started off he actually started off in the novel world uh, with the Sherlock Holmes novel the seven percent solution uh, that was his first uh, way in even though he'd worked on some scripts etc uh, it was novels that really got him, got him going and he's got a really good story about how we got in, some really good advice, uh, and yeah, and just, I mean, he's Nick Meyer, rather can, it's just fantastic. Yeah, he's, he's a proper Hollywood uh, heavyweight, I think it's fair to say, and also it's really interesting how Sherlock Holmes, uh, the books, these books that he loved as a kid, has sort of followed him through his career and helped him through his career, those stories, um, because not only is there the 7% solution, you know, he draws comparisons to what happens in Wrath of Khan with uh, Sherlock and Moriarty and things like that. So there's always been that influence over him. Um, he is uh, a really dry, funny guy to speak with. Uh, he's got some strong views about reviewers as opposed to critics <laughs> uh, and also uh, getting notes from the studio as well. And he, he has this really interesting categorization of different types of notes that you, that you can get from the studios. So um, it's it's a it's a slightly longer episode than normal, but you know I, I felt it's I, I think it's fully justified given given who we're speaking with, and it is full of really uh, interesting and useful information for writers as well. And he also, in fact, gives a special preview of a next Trek project that he's working on as well. That's right, a page one exclusive. You'll yes, have to listen indeed. to find out what that is, though. Indeed, indeed. So um, we'll get straight into it after a quick advert for our uh, writer's notebook and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest. But for now, on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. 
As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Um, I, no, I, I, I never thought about being a writer. It was just something that I always did. Mm-hmm. I guess it must have started when I was very young, under five, because my my father would would read stories to me, and I guess the impetus to make up stories, um, otherwise known as lying, um, <laughs> started very. You, you know, Plato didn't want writers in the Republic because they were liars um so i just it was just something that i always did and i would tell stories to my father and he would write them down and then he got he said see here i'm i'm tired of being your stenographer a word i'm sure i didn't understand uh you do your own writing from now on and then it was just something that i always did it was never an ambition um, I've still never really thought about it. I just think that words are my familiars. Words are my safe place. That's a, that's all I can tell you. And I know you say in your book that after high school you you moved to Iowa and you were doing doing film reviews for the local paper there. And and you were there for four years or so. I mean, and that must have been a really great point in your career in terms of of learning. You know, putting in pieces of, of work on time, editing quickly, making contacts, and and trying to hone that writing skill. Is it? Well, I'm sure that as far as uh, that aspect of writing, it was. Although I. I'm not sure how much I was aware of it at the time. I'm I'm never quite sure how much I'm aware of anything at the time. Um, all I knew was that I was getting to watch movies and and sort of tell people what I thought about them. Um, and I I so enjoyed doing that or hearing the sound of my own voice or comparing my reactions with the movies. There's a difference, as I've discovered, between a critic and a reviewer. 
um, you know, a, a reviewer is somebody who is telling people who have not seen the movie whether they should spend their time and their money uh, going to see the movie. But as Anatole France defined the function of a critic, he said the critic's function is to narrate the adventures of his soul among masterpieces. Now, take away for the moment the word masterpieces, there's, you know, the, the reviewers who are often, you know, no better than the movies they review, since mediocrity is the prevailing norm on a good day. Um, but critics who assume that you have seen the movie and that you are sort of comparing your soul with theirs in response. I, I never agreed with Pauline Kael when she was writing for The New Yorker, but I lived to read those reviews, mm. to be challenged, to argue, to read someone who wrote like an angel, who took movies more seriously than the people who made them, um, and whose ideas were always interesting. Somebody said she had everything but taste. Um, and that I thought that was very interesting, but I thought she was absolutely brilliant. I thought James Agee, absolutely brilliant in ways that, you know, most daily reviewers, the people who give sort of thumbs up, thumbs down, that kind of crap, um, are not. So, you know, I think I, I think basically I was a reviewer. I was not a critic, although by the end of 400 reviews, I may have been drifting into or because my reviews became uh, popular. And I think it was obviously because people were became interested in hearing me sound off, whatever it was. I mean, what you're saying about critics is absolutely right, because you can love to read critics about you know i'm thinking not just film but also restaurant sure, critics sure. or something like that and you can it can just be a pleasure to read a, a really scathing or great uh, piece by a, a good restaurant critic and or an, orig or an original uh, kind of sort of my favorite example of why i thought pauline kale was so brilliant was she reviewed the Year of Living Dangerously, the Peter Weir film with Mel Gibson and Sigourney Weaver and Linda Hunt. And she said, it's really interesting to compare The Year of Living Dangerously with Casablanca. They're essentially the same movie. They're about people in a third world country and they're sort of struggling to escape. Um, and she said the difference is that the third world denizens of Casablanca actually all live in Burbank. And at five o'clock, when the studio closes, <laughs> they will go home to their barbecues, their little league games and their PTA meetings. But the third world people in the year of living dangerously are literally starving to death in front of your eyes. And that disbalances the whole movie. Who cares whether the white people get onto the plane? The, the, <laughs> it, it makes 
it, 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 it's sort of ludicrous at that point. And that's why Casablanca works better as, as a movie mm-hmm. um, than The Year of Living Dangerously, notwithstanding, you know, they're both interesting to watch. Henry James said that the least demand you can make of a work of art is that it be interesting and that the most demand is that it be moving. And Casablanca is moving. I'm not sure that the year of living dangerously is moving, certainly in the way that they were hoping it would be, precisely because of this disbalance. And that's why I like reading Kale. Some of her theories I just thought were crackpot. You know, she'd defend movies that I thought were absurd. Um but it was always provocative. You were always challenged. Yeah. You were always sort of arguing with yourself at the end of reading. <laughs> and the first, you know, the first screenplay that you went on to write was an adaption of a Jack Finney novel called Assault on a Queen. And it was a, it was a kind of, I got the impression that it was almost like an exercise for you because you didn't, you didn't have the rights to it, but you turned it into a screenplay for the experience almost. Yes, I think that's the simplest way. My dad once said to me that art students, at least as he understood them, were sent to sit in in front in the Louvre and copy paintings that were there. So you sort of learn by doing or learn by imitating. Um, so I love this book. And for those of your listeners who may need reminding, Jack Finney wrote The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which has been made into a movie many times, but the original is still probably the best. He also wrote a novel called Time and Again, which is they've tried to make into a movie for the last 35 years and have sunk millions into screenplay after screenplay. Um Anyway, I loved Assault on a Queen. And I said, well, this is easy. And it doesn't really matter whether I own the rights to it because nothing's going to happen with this. This will just be what it would be like to write a screenplay. I I wrote two very early screenplays, and that was one. And I was flabbergasted to learn a couple of years later to, to find myself reviewing the movie that got made of Assault on a Queen with Frank Sinatra and Verna Lisi. And it was, and and it was so awful. (laughs) And one of the things that was completely confusing to me was why they changed things from the book, which was a movie laid out. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, my idea of how to make it into a screenplay was to start on page one and turn that into a screenplay and go on to page two and turn that into a screenplay. I, um, and uh, I, I was bewildered. I, I didn't understand, you know, what happens when a movie star comes on and says, well, this is how I want it. And then everybody starts jumping through misshapen hoop, hoops. Um, the other screenplay I wrote back then was an original it was a biography of Heinrich Schliemann, for which I thought the world was panting. Um, <laughs> are you familiar with Schliemann? No, no, I'm not. 
Heinrich Schliemann was the discoverer of Troy. Okay. okay. He he was a, a real character and a half and and a reckless a sort of plunderer, but he was the first uh, person apparently to operate on the theory that legends most likely have their origins in fact. And his father used to read him bedtime stories of the Iliad. And when he became a frightfully rich man, I mean, multi-multi, he decided at the height of his riches that he was going to find Troy, which he was convinced was real. And he found 10 cities piled on top of each other and enough gold to pay off the national debt of Greece. Not that they ever got to use it for that, but anyway... Um, that's Schliemann, and he also spoke something like twenty-three languages, and wow. so it's does, an amazing does, life. Yeah, so it does I, sound like a good basis for a film, I have to say. Yeah, it was called "The Gold of Troy." Nice. Um, and but I think when you in your in your book you said that you decided that if you wanted to be a writer, you had to write something that that was going to sell, and you wrote the non-fiction book about the making of the love story. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I was writing all kinds of things that weren't selling. Mm-hmm. I was living in New York after the University of Iowa. And I wrote a novel that was crappy. I I wrote a screenplay, indeed, that was optioned um, about John Wilkes Booth. Um, and I thought, well, here we go. But but we didn't, because that's the fate of most projects and most scripts. Um, and I finally thought, well, I, I have people say, what do you do? And I, my answer was always, I'm trying to be a writer. I couldn't quite say I am a writer, even though I was technically writing. Um, so I always qualified it. And I thought, but what can you write that might really sell? And I thought, well, nonfiction sells more than fiction. I thought, anyway, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Uh, What could I write that was nonfiction? And I had been the publicist on the set of this movie, Love Story, that had become a ginormous hit. And somewhat after the fact, like nine months after the fact, I sat down and and wrote a nonfiction account of my experiences watching this movie being made. And then I, I got an advance from a paperback house and I converted the advance into traveler's checks and headed West with my typewriter to Los Angeles where I had never been and knew not a soul, uh, hoping somehow or, this was not a very well-formed plan to uh, get into the movie business. And I mean, in, in terms of advice for writers that are trying to break in as well, would you advise that writing with one eye on the commercial aspect of the work's important? You know, is, is it, should you just write what you love and hope others love it as well? Or should you always have an idea of a kind of marketplace where you could, where your book will sit, what's selling at the moment and that sort of thing? I think it's an interesting question. Um, I think I may from time to time 
have had one eye on what I took to be commercial prospects. But in the long run, if you look at my career, um, I basically have written to please myself. Um, I write the books that I would like to read. I write the screenplays, by, you know, by and large, uh, that I would like, uh, movies I would like to see. On the theory that if I like something, other people will like it. Uh, I would never tell you a joke that I didn't think was funny. Mm -hmm. On the off chance that you might laugh. If I don't think it's funny, I won't get the laugh. That's all there is to it. The French film director, Robert Bresson, said, my job is not to find out what the public want and give it to them. My job is to make the public want what I want. Yeah. And that's sort of, you know, my op. When I was interested, for example, in writing my own Sherlock Holmes novel, mm -hmm. Sherlock Holmes was fading from the public consciousness. Yeah. Nobody was interested in 1972 in Sherlock Holmes. They just, they, they, I was the only geek who was, you know, geeking out on, still geeking out on these stories that had enchanted me as a child. And when I stumbled onto this idea, which like most of my ideas is not my idea, but somebody else's of Holmes collaborating with Sigmund Freud. And I sat down during a Writers Guild strike when we weren't allowed to write screenplays and I had a lot of time on my hands. And I sat down and wrote the book that I wanted to write and the book that I wanted to read. It did not occur to me that this book was going to be the number one best-selling novel in the United States for 40 weeks or whatever it was. I... I, at the end of it, I thought, well, I'm sure this is publishable. That was the length of my, you know, I said, this, this is as good as, you know. And one of the things that happened to me at a certain point, which was instructive, was I got a job in the story department at Warner Brothers in New York, where the job was to read and evaluate screenplays. Mm -hmm. And they were all shit. <laughs> they were just terrible and i thought wait a minute i could write something better than this and that was very encouraging yeah. you know this thing about we were talking about you know most most critics are mediocre well that's all right most art is mediocre and what's more than that most people are mediocre that's why we get so excited when something great comes along that's why when it's Stephen Sondheim or Steven Spielberg or maybe anybody named Steve who comes along, you know, we we start jumping up and down and go, oh, my God, this is really exciting because real quality is rare. Mm -hmm. And if you can just manage to, you know, bring up your game. um you're in with chances, I guess. Yeah. I mean, luck plays a role in this. Somebody recommended a general to Napoleon and said, this guy is a very good general. And Napoleon said, I know he's good. But is he lucky? Yeah. 
No, I mean every guest we've had on says something very similar. That yeah, the, 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 no matter how good something is, there is an element of luck always in in these things as well. The right timing, the right person seeing it at the right time when they're looking for something like that. Um, but I, I want to ask you because I think when you were writing or when the seven percent solution was um, was was being made. Was being published, you got some notes back from the editor that that you what you wanted to push back on, and I think throughout your career there have been periods where people have tried to give you notes that, alluding to what you've already said, I think maybe that sometimes aren't the best thing for the story. So how do you deal with that sort of thing? Well, this is a big question, and all my answers, as you've probably noticed, are long winded. Um. There are four kinds of notes. The first kind of note is the note that is so good that you are kicking yourself that you didn't do this in the first place and you cannot sleep. You cannot leave the book or the script or whatever it is you've been working on lying overnight, unaddressed. Mm -hmm. That's how good it is. That's That's the I must note. And why didn't I think of that? And so on. The second kind of note we'll call the I can note, which is you don't really understand why it's important to somebody, whether it's the editor or the studio, but it's no skin off your nose to do it. So sure. The third kind of note is what I'll call the, I don't have the footage note which is another way of saying i don't know how to do this Um, and sometimes if it's a film you don't have the footage otherwise you just don't understand how it works and it's best not to tell people you know that i i i won't do it um but it's more diplomatic perhaps to say you know i i don't see how to do and maybe they can help you maybe they can uh, tell you and in telling you sort of explain more about the, the note but it's it's sort of the I don't have the footage I wish there were a close-up of the girl here yeah but I didn't get one yeah. sorry <laughs> um, and the last kind of note the fourth note is the over my dead body note <laughs> uh, the, the note where you simply draw a line in the sand and go no that is not happening do with me as you will um burn me at the stake but i am not you know going to uh betray everything that this thing is or it wants to be because your note is so stupid wrong inexcusable whatever whatever it is the other aspect of notes and i think this is what your original question was talking about when i the original editor of the novel the 7% solution, handed me back my manuscript and said, here's the editing job I've done on your, your manuscript. And here's the, my, my thesis in editing it, which was basically that although your novel takes place in, uh, was, it, it, although your novel was written in 1893, which by the way, is also a misreading of the novel, because the novel was supposedly being dictated in 1939 by a very elderly Watson. So he he had already slightly misread it. But um, 
He said, although it takes place in 1893, you're actually writing for an audience in 1974. And so I've pruned it and simplified some of the uh, Victorian language. And I understood in theory what he was saying. I, I got the idea of it. But when I read the, the manuscript as he had uh, edited it, it no longer read or sounded like Arthur Conan Doyle, yeah. which was the whole point of the book. Mm -hmm. And here I was, I was lucky. If you're a first time novelist and your editor says this and this and this and this and this, it's basically his experience with a lot of books and the publishing industry versus your untutored and inexperienced intuition. And you may find yourself yielding to the, the sort of the weight of, you, you may wind up believing more in his experience than your intuition. Yeah. But I was lucky because I was doing a forgery. I was trying to be Arthur Conan Doyle and I knew what that sounded like. Yeah. And this didn't anymore. And so I said, no, you have to put it all back. It's funny because, because Holmes is something is a property, which now you've, we've seen examples of that, of, 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 of taking Sherlock Holmes and modernizing them, whether it's the Guy Ritchie films, which are still set in the right time frame, but feel very modern the way they're shot and, and, and the way they, everyone speaks or the, or the Cumberbatch TV show, which is set to modern day. I mean, what's your views on, on the way that the property has been kind of yanked into the modern days? Does it still feel authentic to you? Well, that's a complicated question. I grew up, adoring the original Arthur Conan Doyle stories. I, I think childhood experiences are sometimes the most long-lasting, mm -hmm. whether you're meeting a, a grown-up or having an experience or encountering works of art, when you're at a very impressionable age, and those things do impress upon you, they imprint upon you. And your childhood encounters with, for the purposes of this uh, discussion, art, are very lasting encounters. Certain movies and books that you read at a certain age never let go in ways that other material may subsequently do. So having read and taken very seriously at age 11 or whatever it was, the 60 Sherlock Holmes stories. I hated every imitation that I ever saw. I hated Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes because I didn't understand why they took it out of period. I didn't understand why Watson was a jerk. Why does a genius hang out with a jerk? <laughs> it made no sense to me. And what's more, I could not imagine the character played by Nigel Bruce as Watson being the voice of Watson in the stories that I read. So I 
was, at least in this area of my life, a kind of arch conservative. I wanted my homes straight. And I think one of the reasons for writing the 7% solution was to put my, to take the needle out of that groove and put it in the groove where I thought it properly belonged. Um, I've since, I don't know if the word is mellowed or matured or, or what, but for example, I loved the first two seasons of Sherlock, the Benedict Cumberbatch, Martin Freeman. I thought those were great. Um, I loved the Billy Wilder, the private life of Sherlock Holmes. I am ambivalent about the Guy Ritchie stuff. I think that, that Holmes and Watson are probably in the ballpark of being more what I had in mind, where Watson is not a, a dummy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that Robert Downey is a very good Sherlock. In the same way, I think that sort of Basil Rathbone might be a very good Sherlock if they'd only give him a chance with the rest of the material. No one, I think, seems to want to deal with Holmes as Doyle wrote him and the kinds of cases, because they're not earth shattering cases. They're not end of the world cases. And this sort of arch villain, this sort of Moriarty stuff that never interested me. And by the way, it didn't interest Doyle either. He only dreamt up Moriarty because he was attempting to, to get rid of Holmes And, it's, you know, he's been since turned into a kind of Lex Luthor, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, arch villain or something. And it, it's very uninteresting to me. I like to tell stories or make movies about people trying to figure out shit. I'm not interested in superheroes. Mm-hmm. Um I'm, I might be interested in supervillains only because there are so many of them. We recently had one as president. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but seriously, folks. Um, anyway, so, yeah, my uh, the other Sherlock Holmes movie that I thought was great was with Michael Caine and Ben Kingsley. And it was called Without a Clue. And in that movie, Sherlock was the dummy and Watson was the smart one. And I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> I, well, I, I just wanted to speak about your, your actual writing process itself, because you've said that um, a lot of your writing takes place before you even put pen to paper. Um, that you know, you'll play it over in your head and you'll think it and the characters will develop in your head and stuff like that. I mean how long before you start actually the physical process of writing does something swim around in your head or does it just depend on the on the story itself many years ago i was when i was at iowa a very then famous writer named max shulman came to speak to us he was the creator of dobie gillis and uh, rally around the flag, uh, humorous stuff that was very, very popular. 
He was the most famous person I had ever seen. And we were all sitting there breathless on his words. And somebody said, do you start a novel with an outline? And he said, absolutely. I would no more start a novel without an outline than I would start a car trip without a roadmap. And I was 18 years old, and I remembered having like the first original thought in my whole life. I thought, that sounds like a boring road trip. <laughs> um, supposing you see something that looks cool off to one side of the road, you but you can't go there because you've got this road map that AAA has all worked out for you or something. Um, so... I think about things, the big thing for a long time. When the, uh, a novel that I wrote, not the one that came out in November, but the one that came out a, a year earlier called The Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols. I was hatching that for 10 years. Um, I had the central notion that it would be interesting to see Sherlock tackle the uh, protocols of the learned elders of Zion, which is the most famous and vicious hoax of all time. But it wasn't until I stumbled across a, on a book that was about something related that the dam sort of burst and I began to get the idea of it. I think my way of writing is disorganized. I do carry around that little book that I showed you of miscellaneous notes. It's kind of like fiddling with a Rubik's cube. And this goes for screenplays as well. Um, with screenplays, it's maybe a little more coherent. I, you know, I go, what's the first shot? Okay. And what's the next shot? And somehow in terms of plot, it's a little bit like headlights on a car on a night drive. The headlights illuminate something that's, I don't know, a few hundred feet in front of you. And then by the time you get there, you're hoping that the headlights are gonna illuminate something more. Mm -hmm. um, so, it's a disorganized process, and I'm not fully aware of what's going on, only the passage of time. You look up, it's hours later, which uh, puts me in mind of something that I uh, read years ago, uh, probably in college, in, in Plato. The Oracle at Delphi tells Socrates that he's the wisest man in Greece. And he thinks, hang on, that can't be right. And his notion is all I have to do to disprove the oracle at Delphi is to find somebody wiser than me. So he goes talking to all segments of Greek society until finally he works his way around to the poets. And I think poets means artists of some kind. And he, so, you know, surely these guys, and then it was probably just guys, who write 
or sculpt or paint so insightfully about the human condition will prove to be much wiser than me. And he said, I was astonished to find that the poets were the stupidest people I spoke to. <laughs> they were, they were idiots. They were like children, except when they did their art, at which point they seemed to go into a kind of trance. And in that trance, they take dictation from God. And this they call inspiration. And then when the trance is over, they go back to being idiots again. <laughs> and I think, you know, uh, that comparison, that story resonated with me because how many times have I looked up and I have no idea where the time went. I was totally in what I guess is called a state of flow or something like that. And uh, one of the things I do a lot every day is I walk. And I, I walk, and where I live, there's nothing to see. Uh, Stephen Sondheim referred to Southern California as possessing a listless beauty. So it's not, it's not like Edinburgh. It's not a dramatic beauty. It's just like, <laughs> whoa, here's a flower. Um, so... <laughs> I walk along with my little book and I, and sometimes I've reached a point when I'm writing where I'm totally frustrated. Something isn't working and I don't want to walk away from it and I'll stay there mushing it around. And finally I go, I, I need to stretch here. And the ideas come. Sometimes they come when you're, walking or when you break off to have a pee or something and you and just things change in your head and i mean where do ideas come from anyway good question when i was working i was asked to write the screenplay for philip roth's novel the human stain they gave me the book to read i thought the book was amazing one of roth's best books and it didn't have a clue how to make it into a movie. And weeks were going by before I was supposed to meet with the producers. Not a clue. And I don't know, something like three days before the meeting was supposed to happen. And I had by that time determined to say, sorry, guys, I, I, I can't figure this out. I was sitting in a bathtub. That was back when Los Angeles had water, which we don't anymore. <laughs> and treating myself to a soak. And I, I don't even think this is what I was thinking about. And suddenly, like tumblers clicking in a safe. Click, 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 act one. Click, 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 act two. Click, 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 act three. It all, I just sat there. You know how you wake from a dream and you don't want to move because yeah. you think the dream is going to go away? The water was getting cold. I didn't care. I just thought, please don't let me lose this. And I don't know where that came from. I don't know where ideas come from. I mean, it, it, it sounds like 
is there something to be said about uh, a kind of an inspiration that comes from just immersing yourself in something and having that pressure pot of not much time? Because it sounds a little bit similar to your process on Wrath of Khan, where you kind of had twelve days to get the script in order, and and I know in that you had, you kind of had five scripts to pull from, but this kind of pressure pot of time marching on and your brain just working on things and then suddenly everything comes together in one go is is there is there something in that maybe you know i'm not sure that i am or maybe any writer is particularly intelligent or revealing about discussing their process did you ever did you ever read edgar Allan poe the the philosophy of composition did you ever read that essay no sorry Neither, because this is what he says, and I promise you I'm not making this up. He said, a lot of people ask me how I write. So I'm going to explain how I wrote my most famous poem, The Raven. And so the, my it was all logic. It's nothing but logic. My first decision was to write the poem. I've got to write a poem. My second decision was, how long should the poem be? It is my contention, writes Poe, that a work of art ought to be digestible at a single sitting. That is why I do not write novels. I only write short stories. He faults Milton's Paradise Lost because you can't get it at one sitting. <laughs> so I decided to write a poem that was going to be 100 lines long. The Raven is 108. Next, what is the subject of the poem? It is my contention, writes Poe, that the proper province of poetry is the contemplation of the beautiful. Everything else is prose. So I now had a hundred line poem about something that's beautiful. What's the greatest kind of beauty? Sad beauty. What's the saddest beauty I could think of? Death. Whose death was the saddest I could imagine? A maiden. I now had a 100 line poem about the death of a maiden. At this point, I decided I wanted to have a chorus, a refrain, a stanza, a paragraph, of sentence, a word. What's the saddest word I could think of? Nevermore. Okay, I now had a hundred line poem about the death of a maiden and the refrain was nevermore. Nevermore is an answer. So somebody's asking a question. Who's asking the question? That's a no brainer. The lover of the dead maiden, obviously. Who's answering the question? That's interesting because the answer never varies. It's always never more and never more. Doesn't sound quite human, does it? He said, first I thought of a parrot, but a parrot is a comical bird. And then I realized that ravens could mimic human speech and, and so on. He, he goes through it like that. Now, the way I see it, <laughs> there's like four possibilities. One, this is how he wrote the raven. Two, this is how he thinks he wrote the raven. <laughs> Three. This is how he wishes he'd written the raven. And four. This is how he would like you to think he wrote the raven. <laughs> yeah. You know, which of these or all of these turns out to be true. Hard to say. Uh, and that's why I think asking writers about their process because even with the best will in the world, we may not even be fully aware 
And it's like saying, what are your influences? Who are your influences? Well, there's the ones we say influenced us, the ones we think or would like to think influenced us, the ones we think sound cool to say we were influenced, you know? I'm, I might say, well, yes, the Alain René and Hiroshima Monomore, that was a big influence. Whereas the truth, it was it's really more Bugs Bunny. Um, but that doesn't sound so something. So it's deceptive. And it come, brings me back to what we were talking about before, that writers are liars. And if we can't give you a bottom line answer to something that is mysterious and unanswerable, dictation from God, inspiration, call it what you will, we make make up sort of circumstantial, cute stories. For example, W.S. Gilbert asked how he wrote the Mikado, told the story that there was a Japanese samurai sword hanging over his desk on a wall, and it the rope broke and it fell down and it you know, it sort of came close to decapitating him. And that's how he got the idea for the Mikado. Now, even assuming that some version of that story is true, it doesn't explain how he wrote the Mikado. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, one thing about, so that's, we've sort of talked about, or talked around, you know, how, how you write your own stories. But You've also um, done quite a lot of rewriting other scripts. You you had uncredited uh, writing on Fatal Attraction, Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, is is the approach when you're doing something like that, trying to fix or hone something different from when you're creating something of your own? Yeah, it's much easier to clean somebody else's house than it is to clean your own. Mm-hmm. You become, you know, sort of immune to the box of Kleenex that's sitting on your desk, and even though it's empty, um, but it sort of stays there as a kind of shrine. And you know, and then the housekeeper comes and, without thinking, chucks it into the wastebasket. It's much easier to see what's wrong or needs fixing in somebody else's thing than it is to. Uh, fix your look objectively let's say at your own work so yeah and i should you know add that i don't think much of my work in tomorrow never dies is is in there um you know it's a very sort of hazy area uh there are scripts that i've done a lot of rewriting on and but that isn't one of them is that is that uh do you approach it in a different way, though? Is it is it a is it a more fun process? Just to because presumably you're not you're not having that period where you're trying to think and work through the story at that point because you're being brought in to to do something that's fundamentally already there, albeit you may be making quite big changes. It depends on what the job is. I've been shown scripts that somebody a studio or a producer wants rewritten and the first question is can i see what's wrong with it and lots of times 
I go, well, gee, I think this is pretty good. What do you want? And then they'll say, well, we feel X. And I go, oh, oh, yeah. Okay. I, all right. I, I see what you mean. I, I understand that. And then I can proceed from there to it because I understand it. Sometimes they'll say, well, we feel this and this and this. And I go, ah, uh, gee, doesn't sound, you know, hmm, I'm not sure I know how to do that. That's sort of note number three, if you remember. Yeah. Um, it helps if you can see what's wrong and say, this is, this is what it needs to be. And this is what it, you know, and then, and you'll talk to the producer or whoever it is who's writing the check and they either agree with your analysis uh, and decide to, you know, sort of go with it or they go, no, that's, this isn't what we want. And then, uh, and then as if you can't see their point and their uh, goal, then you, you'd best not tackle it. And I mean, there's no way we can let this go by without me asking about The Wrath of Khan, which is genuinely probably one of my favorite films of all time. And and I know you, you say in your book you weren't a massive Star Trek fan prior to making it and to writing it, but your your work on that film, you know, brought so much lasting change to Trek in terms of the, you know, just the visuals of the uniforms and the costumes, etc. But also the kind of the way Starfleet's a military organization making it more like a nautical warfare type film. And, and, and you've said that you always kind of saw Star Trek as kind of hornblower in space, that kind of military um, uh, ship. Um, and 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 I, I wonder when you approach writing for a, a franchise which has got all these fans and all this history behind it and um, a way that it's been done before and you come along and you, and you, and you change stuff like that, you know, you, you, you write the film that you want to see rather than sticking to what's come previously is that quite a difficult thing to do? And and do you always write? You know, do you, do you, you write with yourself as the main audience as opposed to the the, the fans that may be expecting something? Well, the truth is, uh, number one, that when I saw Star Trek or saw fragments of it as a kid, because I never stayed with it, I didn't like it. It, it looked cheesy. It looked dumb. The man with pointy ears and they were all running around in those silly outfits um, and the sets were cheesy. So I think it's safe to say that I missed everything important that Star Trek had to offer. And when I glommed on to my Horatio Hornblower analogy and for your listeners who may not be familiar with Horatio Hornblower, he was a, a fictitious captain in the Royal Navy during the Napoleonic Wars, sort of loosely based on Horatio Nelson. Um, and he had many adventures and a girl in every port. And if you're 13 years old, this is all sounding kind of cool. And when I was trying to figure out Star Trek and I had been offered to direct, not to write, but to direct the second Star Trek movie. And uh, by the way, I didn't know what a franchise was. I, that, that's not, my thinking is not that sophisticated. Um, I just thought this is a movie 
and I, they showed me the first movie and they showed me some episodes. And I thought the best I could come up with was this is Hornblower in outer space. And if it's Hornblower, then it's the Navy. I'm sure that I flew in the face. I know I flew in the face of what Gene Roddenberry's, you know, we, we had a, what turned out to be a fundamental disagreement. Gene Roddenberry believed or said he believed in the perfectibility of humans, that there was a, that things would keep getting better. I've never seen the least evidence of that. All I've seen is technology, more buttons to push. Um, and so I blundered in and he was, I think, dismayed and possibly disgusted. I didn't think about what the fans wanted. I didn't think about fans. And my and I don't mean to hold them or to be to imply that I hold them in any kind of contempt. Without the fans, there would be no trick. Pure and simple. But art is not made by committee. It just isn't. Uh, and so I think the fans don't know what they want until they get it. Yeah. If you would ask the fans, do you want Spock to die? The answer is no, they don't want Spock to die. until they see him die. And then they go, oh, my God, this is fantastic. <laughs> uh, and this is this is what had to happen. This is how it had to be and so forth. And it becomes memorable and it becomes moving. Um, and, you know, if you're lucky. You know, movies are like souffles. They either rise or they don't, and you can't predict. If you could predict, they'd all make money. Um, so I didn't think about Gene Roddenberry. I didn't think about what Star Trek was trying to be. I didn't think about what the fans wanted. I just thought about how to make this a good story. And that was as far as I got. I've since, you know, over the years, understood more, learned more. But originally that was, you know, what I went for. And I, and I, and I wasn't, you know, I just, I wasn't really paying any attention to anybody except me. But at the end of that film, obviously, you've come in with that approach and obviously done that, but then the studio has, I suppose, put their foot down a bit in terms of adding the hints that Spock might return and things like that, which you didn't want to happen. Yeah, well, I... It's an interesting, you know, topic. Um, one of my favourite works of art is the opera Carmen. And at the end of the opera... Carmen is stabbed by Don Jose and she dies at the end of the opera. And when they put the opera on the first time, 1875, at the Opera Comique in Paris, the, the director of the opera said to, you know, Bizet, does she have to die at the end? <laughs> and he must have said, fuck you, yes, yeah, she has to die. <laughs> um, 
And uh, what, what's the other? Oh, yeah, you know, Romeo and Juliet. I, yeah. When I first came to Hollywood, I was at a, somebody's house for dinner. And I said, we were talking about happy endings versus non-happy endings. And I said, look, Romeo and Juliet has had an unhappy ending for 500 years, and it's a goddamn hit. And this producer said, would be an even bigger hit if they'd lived. <laughs> you, you can't How can win. You argue? Yeah, exactly. The only thing I will say about this, and I you know, point out that audiences may be stupid, but they're never wrong. So when Prokofiev made a ballet of Romeo and Juliet on the theory that corpses can't dance, they lived. And they got booed. He got booed. The audience started booing. He said, no, this is wrong. And he had to put it back. He had to change it to, to what it was supposed to be. So when it came time to, you know, from my perspective, I understood by this point that everybody loves Spock. Spock is a major fixation of Star Trek fans. And I said to the studio when they proposed somehow keeping him alive after i said wait a minute what you're proposing i think is emotionally unforgivable that you're going to wring these people dry with the death of spock and then you're going to say oh just kidding i you know i don't think that's cool now i'm less sure of what i was saying and you know, maybe it's okay the way the way they ultimately did it. And they did it, it was a sort of over my dead body thing. I wasn't going to shoot it. I didn't want to be part of it. But you look at the movie and it, it seems to belong. It seems to be okay. And it wasn't just the studio, by the way, you know, because Leonard Nimoy, who plays Spock, agreed to be in the movie on the condition that he had a great death scene where the, that was the theoretical promise of Harv Bennett. I'll give you a great death scene. You'll never have to deal with this stuff again. <laughs> and and he, he said, okay. And then by the time it was time to film the death scene, you know, and it was clear that the movie, everybody was loving the movie. He was starting to go, hmm, <laughs> maybe I'm being a bit hasty. <laughs> um, it It's a little bit also, by the way, that Arthur Conan Doyle, who was a struggling writer, creates quite by accident Sherlock Holmes, the most famous character after Hamlet or Don Quixote or something. And he was writing his science fiction, Doyle, The Lost World and, you know, dinosaurs or, or Professor Challenger stories or his historical novels, some of which, by the way, are terrific. The White Company, Rodney Stone, all that stuff is really great. And yet it was the home stuff that everybody was glomming on to. So they finally decided, I'm going to have to kill him. I'm going to have to kill him. So he creates Moriarty, the nemesis, the waterfall, blah, 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 blah. But somewhere in the back of his mind... <laughs> He must have wondered if this was really a good idea because he doesn't produce a body. Mm -hmm. 
they go over the waterfall and that's the, the you know and yeah. then when Holmes comes back 10 years or five years or whatever it is later and he says yeah no I lived he can get away with that because there yeah. wasn't a corpse so yeah sometimes you have to think about a bigger picture I wasn't I wasn't thinking about franchise I was just thinking yeah. about a standalone movie is is writing a script more more compromise than it is when you write a book sure you're satisfying so many masters when you're writing a script yeah you're satisfying the the studio the actors the budget you you know you're juggling a lot that's also part of the fun of it the discipline of it ways to skin the cat how do you do it i remember that when i was writing the screenplay for time after time and I knew I was going to direct the movie. And for those of your benighted listeners who have not had the thrill of watching time after time, a brief recap. Um, this deals with the young H.G. Wells, who instead of writing about a time machine, has invented one. But before he has worked up the nerve to use it, Jack the Ripper escapes to the future inside it. And believing that he has unleashed a homicidal maniac on the socialist utopia he's predicted for the end of the 20th century, Wells feels it incumbent upon himself to go after Jack the Ripper. And when he goes into 1979, which is when the movie is set, he finds himself in a museum exhibit devoted to himself, H.G. Wells. And so when I'm writing the screenplay, I'm thinking, okay, so there's going to be Wells's house where he lives, his furnishings, his apartment, whatever. And then we've got to have a museum exhibit about H.G. Wells. And then I, a little light bulb goes off, who knows from where, and says, maybe you could save some money if we just reused all the stuff from his London house, his apartment and turned that into the nucleus of the museum exhibit. You would just save the money and we'd all see the familiar stuff. That would be kind of cool. That's now got labels on it and so forth. And then I thought, oh wait, wouldn't it be amazing if he forgot something back in London <laughs> and then he could like open a desk drawer and pull out an extra <laughs> pair of glasses or something. Um, and so that's how you, that's how you learn, you know, it could be fun, that part of the process. Um, when I was doing Star Trek VI, which involved an assassination in space, and I thought, how do you assassinate somebody in space in a, in a cool way? And the thing that always bugged me in Star Trek or Star Wars, I didn't care, was that they always had gravity on their spaceships. Yeah. They'd walk down it like it was the corridors of a Holiday Inn or something. I just thought, wait, when I see movies of the space station, they're all floating. So maybe there's a gravity machine, something that keeps everybody like, you know, pinned to the floor or whatever. And I said, how come in all those space battles, the gravity machine never gets broken? 
wouldn't it be cool if the assassins disable the gravity device and then they wear like magnetic boots or something and stomp in and kill the guy while everybody is floating helplessly around them, you know? And, and by the way, at a certain point, the director who happened to be me is like tapping the writer on the shoulder and going, how are you going to do that, bub? <laughs> uh, and the writer, you know, leans over his shoulder and says, come on, it's movies. We'll figure it out. <laughs> and so I didn't pull my punch. I just wrote it without knowing how we would do it. Cause I just thought that would be a, a cool thing in movies as it turns out can do anything. Sometimes they shouldn't, but they can. And just going back to your uh, Sherlock Holmes books, your last one came out last year. Um, so, I mean, you're obviously still enjoy. you know, that, that it's a nice, uh, that's what started it. And you're still enjoying writing those, those stories now. So, what's next have you got more of those planned yeah i'm working on another one um i've come to realize and i always realize everything kind of late um that in the way that nathan zuckerman is the avatar for philip roth sherlock holmes has become my avatar <laughs> i get to sort of project my ideas and feelings and worries via him. Uh, this is a recent insight. I think it was like last week. So I'm still <laughs> kind of intrigued by it. Um, I have begun another Holmes book. Uh, I, I only write them when I get ideas for them. And ideas do not come easily or plentifully to me. When people say, do you have an idea for something? I go, no, I don't have ideas. Or I don't like my ideas, and, and then I dismiss them. This is not a good idea. This I, I can see through this or something. So there was like 26 years between the Canary Trainer and the Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols, of which... As I indicated, 10 years were spent just thinking about how to write the adventures of the peculiar yeah. protocols. And then, as it happened, my, my agent and manager, um, Alan Gasmer, suggested, what about homes in Egypt? And that became the return of the pharaoh, because I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's great. And then, purely by chance, I've gotten another idea for a story but it's irregular mm -hmm. it's an irregular process but and it, you also it, oh, sorry, so i was just gonna say it must be it must be fun going back you know you're revisiting that world you know even taking these breaks to is there a sense of familiarity once you once you start writing the character again the familiarity is with the characters for sure the periods are more variable because they keep changing um I think the 7%, and you have to fit them, or at least I felt I had to fit them into the Holmes chronology mm -hmm. as it's more or less accepted and defined. So when Holmes goes to Vienna and visits Sigmund Freud for his cocaine withdrawal cure, that's during the period where 
um, ultimately uh, he went over the waterfall with Moriarty or it's somewhere in that in that gap and so the last Sherlock Holmes story that I wrote the return of the Pharaoh from last November uh, is set in 1911 that's different from 1893 yeah. those are so you have to research the the period, not only immediately surrounding homes, but you know the world. What what's happened? What inventions are in place, and and so forth? Are there telephones? Are there automobiles? Are there airplanes? Um, are there movies? And uh, so the next one is set in 1916 or 1915-1916 so it's in, it's in the middle of world war 1 um and it, and i i and he's 66 years old by then so i'm not sure that i envision anything after that um but um the characters as I uh, are familiar to me, they're they're in my DNA at this point, uh, or at least I I believe that they are. Other people may read the books and say, "Oh, this doesn't sound like Sherlock Holmes at all," or everybody will have their own opinion. But I I can't worry about you know thousands upon thousands of people I've never met. I have to write it so I believe it. Yeah, totally. Um, you also wrote a, a Cannes TV movie as well, a three-part um, show. Is there anything happening with that, or is that is that kind of it's going to be a podcast? <laughs> it is. is no, I'm not joking. Well, that's awesome. No, it, yeah, I am concluding, uh, or I'm told by my lawyers that I am concluding a deal to turn it into a podcast, which I will write and presumably direct. Oh, cool! Um, and if the podcast is a hit then maybe we'll revisit it as uh, on film of some kind. That's awesome. Brilliant. Yeah. We're definitely seeing like a rise of, of kind of radio dramas and audio books in the podcast form and stuff coming back, which is like, there's a Batman. Well, I love, I love radio plays. I used yeah. to direct. I, I, when I was at college, I directed a play a week and, you know, t- talking on behalf of radio plays I believe this is another long-winded thing coming that um, all great artistic media rely for their success on something that they leave out. Paintings do not move. Music has no intellectual content. Words are merely code on a page. In each of those cases, it is the imaginative contribution of the listener, the reader, the whatever, you know, the painting moves when it meets your eye. Beethoven becomes profound when it hits your ear, when your imagination complements the sounds, which is otherwise just sounds. The words on the page make you laugh or cry when your imagination expands on what they're conjuring up movies alone film alone has the hideous capacity to do everything for you we call this eye candy and candy is not good for you 
Um, so I look for ways for things to leave out. And radio is a great way for things to leave out. You know, even imagination does not need any training. Yeah. No, when somebody really cool. says, look at that filthy ring around the collar. We all see the filthy ring around the collar. That's we cool. last book that you read the last book that i read mm-hmm. the last book that i read which i because i do nothing but read um i've read two books that really intrigued me one of them is a book called wagnerism art and politics in the shadow of music and it's by alex ross who is the music critic for the new yorker magazine and the thesis of the book is that all modernity, political, social, philosophical, aesthetic, sexual, you name it, all modernity comes from Richard Wagner. And for 500 pages, he proves it. <laughs> I could not, I could not stop. Re- I, you know, it's a book that you can open up at any page and it doesn't matter because you're going to have your mind blown. Um, but um, I read the whole thing and I just thought, oh, wow, this is really amazing. And it started because I, I heard Alex Ross give a Zoom lecture about Wagner and Hollywood. And of course, there's no film music without Richard Wagner because he invented the leitmotif. And that's the basic tool of every film composer. Bum, 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 ba-dum, bum, bum. That's, that little signature tells you that's Darth Vader. That's all you need to know. That's Wagner. He invented that. Anyway, so that's one of the books I read. The other one I've just read is a book by Stephen Galloway, which is a joint biography of Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee called Truly Madly. And I grew up, Laurence Olivier was my idol growing up and my inspiration. Um, I saw this movie when I was about 13, which I thought the name of the movie was Henry V. (laughs) I guess it's called Henry V, but I I just saw the V. And um, it it never said Shakespeare. It just showed pictures of, you know, armor and horses and swords and everything. I thought, oh, that looks cool. So I went to the movie and I just sat there till the theater closed watching this movie again and again and again. I thought, okay, that guy's the best actor. This is the best movie. This guy, whoever wrote it, he's the best writer. <laughs> um, and it sort of changed changed my whole life. So I have like eight biographies of Olivier, but the one I just read, this Truly Madly by Stephen Galloway, I think is the best one. It just really blew my mind and for the first time made him sort of understandable to me as, as a person. And I spent three days with him because he was on the 7% solution. He Mm -hmm. plays professor Moriarty. See how it all hangs together. (laughs) Uh, What about the last film that you've watched? Well, a lot of my film watching has really changed changed uh, i guess partially because of the pandemic Mm -hmm. 
um, and partially because films themselves have now become, you know, limited series. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's hard to find a, uh, it's, it's hard to find a movie because um, I, I don't go to see movies that are comic book movies. I, I'm not interested in superheroes or any, I just would want to see, see movies about a regular hero. Um, so I'm trying to think, and I go to movie theaters because I love the popcorn and I just like to sit there and see something that's larger than life, not mm -hmm. something on a TV set or even a big TV set. Um, and I like watching movies with an audience. I like the mm -hmm. shared experience of all being moved together to laugh, to cry. Um, I, there's a revival cinema very close to where I live, walking distance. And the other day, I don't know, about a month ago, I I walked there and watched The Seven Samurai oh, of yeah. Akira Kurosawa with a lot of popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> I had a good time. But I'll go to a movie. If I can see a movie that, that's not a superhero eye candy movie but a movie that's like about something then yeah i'll turn up cool and uh, last tv show that you watched or are watching well i just watched um i think it's called spiral or staircase oh, staircase. oh with, yeah with colin firth yeah um, i just watched that and i've also been watching and very much enjoying uh a series called under the banner of heaven oh, which is yeah. about which is about the Mormons. Now, remember, oh, yeah, yeah. the first Sherlock Holmes story, A Study in Scarlet, is about the Mormons. <laughs> so great. Sherlock Holmes got me interested in everything. <laughs> you know, got me interested in, in Mormons, got me interested in the, in the Indian mutiny, got me interested in cocaine, for better or worse. Um, <laughs> this has all sort of led me to these things. So when I drove across country to seek my fortune in los angeles of course i had to stop in utah i of course i had to see the mormons i you know religions interest me you know what's the difference between a cult and a religion yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, numbers <laughs> numbers <laughs> you, know, you got three guys who believe the earth is flat well, i mean that's a cult but you or or 12 guys or something but you know by the time it's millions it's a religion. And then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the very, very last thing we always do is a super quick fire, either or. And I always say there's no right answer apart from one. But we'll start off with uh, Can or Chang. What? <laughs> I'm the, the the bad guys from Star Trek 2 and 6. Can or Chang? Who, If you had to pick one. Oh, you said Chang. I thought you said Chan. And I was going to think like Charlie Chan. <laughs> right? um, what about them? Who's your favorite? You're asking me to pick amongst my children. <laughs> I'm afraid so. You can you can sit on the fence. You can, okay, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Move on. Uh, uh, music or no music when you're writing? No music. Um, I, and, and no music when I'm reading. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Music is not a background experience for me. It's a, I, I come from a family of all musicians. My, mother was a concert pianist my 
grandfather was in the Boston Symphony as a violinist. I'm a music fool, but if I'm listening to music, I can't be doing anything else. Mm, yeah. I cannot be doing anything else. And certainly, if I'm trying to create my own music, music with words, I can't be listening to music while I'm trying to do that. What about a fancy restaurant or a takeaway? It depends how much time and how much money I have. <laughs> <laughs> these are these are meant to be quick fire questions. You, you're, okay. this is, this, well, uh, I, I I'm giving you quick fire answers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a night owl or early bird? More night, I think. Um, getting up for me is like a big decision. Am I going to get up? Um, I'll, I'll spend half an hour, you know, reading the newspaper on my phone. And then, you know, if I haven't been too much clobbered by what I'm reading, <laughs> I will, you know, crawl out of bed and start doing my stretches. I wish I were an early bird. And it's interesting about when do you write? You know, I like to write in the morning, mm -hmm. but I don't need to. Mm -hmm. I can write late at night. doesn't matter. The question is whether you have anything to write, mm -hmm. just to say, are, are you ready to put it on, on paper? And if you don't, you're just going to sit there star staring, you know, at the page or the screen or whatever it is and go, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and the last one is real book or ebook. I prefer real books every time except when traveling. Yeah. And I've yeah. now made a concession for the first time. Um, when I read my first ebook uh, recently, hang on, I'll tell you what it was. Uh, and I had a, and I, oh, it was true. It was uh, truly madly was um, wasn't the first ebook that I read. There was one more before it um, that I read. Um, let me just see if i can find what it was you, you can still see me right or hear me or yeah, something yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can still see yeah uh library what was the first book i i read oh i'll tell you what i read and i loved it um i read a book called jenny which is the life of jenny jerome who was the mother the mommy the american mommy of winston churchill Oh, okay. and, and, and a most remarkable, most astonishing gal she was. And that's the first book I ever read on Kindle because I was going someplace and I just couldn't fit. This was like, a, these are big books. Yeah. You know, um, uh, Wagnerism is a big book. Truly, madly, these are substantial books. And so I read a lot of history and a lot of biography, as it turns out. And that was, I loved that. That was fantastic. And I was so glad, you know, they say, don't meet your heroes. I was so glad he wasn't this kind of horrible, angry man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shattered it for me. <laughs> but no, and, and also how interesting was that about the Wrath of Khan podcast? So, not the Wrath of Khan podcast, the Khan podcast. It's kind yeah. of, I always wondered what was going on with that three episode mini series that he'd, that he'd written. And it looks like it's got to come back in podcast form. It's very exciting. Yeah, no, that, that, that'll definitely be something to look forward to. Because as you said, 
these sort of um, narrative podcasts uh, are, are really taking off again now um, with yep. with the um, explosion of podcast popularity. So yeah, that that that'll be great. And I, I thought I I actually thought he was kidding when he said it. I know you did. I kind of laughed, and he was like, "No, I'm serious." I was like, oh, "Sorry, sorry, Nick." <laughs> yeah, almost almost had to go back to calling him Nicholas now. <laughs> almost. Um, but I, I thought some really interesting insights into you know, working in Hollywood and also just what he was saying about that comparison with how Edgar Allan Poe wrote that, that essay about yeah, the, really the philosophy of inspiration and, and you know, the the potential reasons or um, approach to a process that the writer, as Nick says, probably a writer doesn't ever really fully know their process, but afterwards they kind of look back with... with um, rose-tinted glasses as to how it, how it worked. Yeah, I think it's so true because you know, it's not like a one-and-done novel, like, you know, it's multiple drafts and you're working in layers on each edit and 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 so when you look back in it, you'll say, oh yeah, of course that happened because of that but something that led to something the second part might not have been added into draft 12, you know, so it's, it's so hard to know it's such a nebulous concept that I think it is difficult to know at the time and it is only when you're looking back you can see, of course that was where I was going. I just didn't realise it until I'd finished the 12th draft. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, um, thanks so much to Nick for taking the time to speak to us. Um, we really loved having him on the podcast, especially you, Tarek. Oh, yeah, that was um, lifelong ambition. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to picking up his next book because these further adventures of Sherlock Holmes, I suppose they are, they sound great we'll put some links to uh, his books in the podcast description so you can pick those up and obviously uh, if you want to see wrath of Khan or any of his other amazing films then they're no doubt available on the various streaming services as well and um, but next week uh, we have another great guest not i should say martha wells because we're going to keep that episode back for a couple of weeks but it will be coming i promise yeah, next week we're going to be chatting with Jane Shemilt, who is an internationally acclaimed best-selling author of psychological suspense novels. Her debut novel was Daughter, and it was a Richard and Judy Pick shortlisted for the Lucy Cavendish Award, nominated for an Edgar Award. Uh, it was the fastest-selling debut novel of 2014. That's quite exciting. Yeah, and yeah, again, a really interesting chat because she came from uh, a background as a doctor and then has used that in her... Uh, you know, to, to form the background to, to the novels as well. So it's a really great episode, so please do tune in for that one. And if you enjoyed today's episode, then please do like and subscribe to the podcast uh, and give us a rating and review. All of those things help to keep us in the charts and continue to get great guests like Nick. And of course, if you would like to get in touch with us, like many of you did for the Adrian Tchaikovsky live episode we did uh, last weekend. Thank you very much for that. You soon can, of to course, be released in podcast. Soon to be released, yep. yeah. Uh, you can get in touch with us by sending us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk or a tweet in the Twitter machine, which is at UK page one. But otherwise, um, have a great week and we'll see you next episode. See you later. 